Good morning again, exiles. Uh, if you want, you can go ahead and go to First Chronicles 29. First Chronicles 29. We'll talk about the chapters before that, but that'll be a good place to start for you to open up to. Let me, let me pray just briefly for us once more. God, make us attentive to your word. Change us by it. That we listen, that we might learn, that we might love you and our neighbor as ourself. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in keeping with the will of this congregation, uh, from last fall's members meeting, to set some money aside for the renovation of Temple Baptist Church's meeting house, this coming Thursday, May the 7th, a crew will be arriving here on site to begin renovating the fellowship hall and all the floors down there therein making that space which was previously unusable to us, uh, usable upon your return. After that project is completed, uh, there will be other projects that will need to have attention as well, which leads me to the focus of our time in the Word this morning. Friends, I do not count it uh, a mere coincidence that this past Thursday, our brother Eldon Motes retired from decades of faithful gospel ministry. Nor do I count it a mere coincidence that that happens to come in line with what is going to happen this coming Thursday. And thirdly, how we planned over a year ago to have a break uh, from our series in Luke at this time. I don't count it uh, just uh, mere coincidence that all three of these things came together at the same time. And so after a time of prayer and consideration, I believe it to be a providential time for us as a church to orient ourselves to all of the work that is in front of us and all of things that are going to happen as it relates to the renovation of this meeting house. And so while I am sure that many of us are excited for what lies ahead, we also need to be mindful of the pitfalls that lie all around us as we walk together through this journey. The fact is that for the 10 plus years of Restoration Church's history, We have never owned property, and we have never had to make decisions like we are making now as a church. And I'm sure all of you, or at least most of you, are familiar with stories of churches when they've walked through things like this, where great division has occurred for some reason. And so therefore, while this is an exciting time, we must enter into this time with a great deal of wisdom, a great deal of carefulness, a great deal of love. Because the reality is, of the 145 members of Restoration Church, there are, I'm sure, at varying levels, 145 opinions as to how all of this should go about. And so some of you would see this building as nothing more than a shell. Uh, Therefore, we should spend as little money on it as possible. And then there are others of you that might be on the opposite side. You would understand this building to be an investment. And therefore, we should put our best foot forward financially. Most of us are probably somewhere in between. But friends, the reality is someone is going to have to make the final decision on things like where to put the William Wilberforce mural, right? Does it go in the the fellowship hall? Does it go at the top of the stairs when you come to the top? Somebody's got to make that decision. We have a lot to look forward to, friends, but we have to move forward in all of these decisions together. Together. Keeping the main thing the main thing, as Joey said, keeping the main thing of making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ in Washington, D.C. and beyond. We cannot lose sight of that mission. That is what we are about. We've got to love each other, forgive each other, walk alongside of each other in the same way that Christ loved us, which leads me to our text for this morning, the book of Chronicles. Here's what I plan to do as we walk through this text. What I plan to do is a hair dangerous. You should know that. I'm going to take the book of Chronicles that is full of truths about the house of the Lord, about the temple. Uh, And I am going to uh, use those texts that talk about building a house of the Lord and and, uh, renovating a house of the Lord and even uh, seeing that house of the Lord be destructed. I'm going to take all of those truths and help orient them to our life together as we walk through this building renovation. Now, hopefully, that should be obvious to you why that's dangerous. Because... The book of Chronicles is most definitely not, I repeat, not about a church building. It is not about a church building. That's not the point of Chronicles. And so, 
Uh, if I'm going to teach this text as a way that is faithful to you, servant to you, I need to be careful to sort of keep that thing in view. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna set up the book of Chronicles uh, in just a moment. Uh, we'll consider three, po- three points that will encapsulate what I believe to be the three main points of the book as a whole. Uh, and I'll then take those meanings in each of those three points and tell you what I believe the scripture's teaching us from there. And then I'll try to carefully apply that meaning to our life together through the renovation. So let's go ahead and dive in. Let's talk first about the context of the book of Chronicles. Uh, The book of Chronicles in our English Bibles comes between 1st and 2nd Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah. If you were to look in your table of contents, you would see that's where it falls. However, I believe it is important for us to see that the book of Chronicles, which by the way is one book by the author, it's meant to be one book, I believe it's important for us to see that the book of Chronicles in the Hebrew order shows us something significant. The Hebrew order finds the book of Chronicles as the last book of the Old Testament, the final book of the Old Testament. Now to be clear, the ordering of the books, I do not believe are part of the inspiration of God's scriptures. The order is not inspired as it were, but I do believe that when we look at the Hebrew order of the Bible, we get a better sense of the meaning Uh, that the remnant of old was seeing those books, uh, seeing inside of those books. And so one of the reasons why so many people, I think, are unfamiliar with the book of Chronicles is because it follows Samuel and Kings. Since Chronicles is so heavy on the documentation of Kings, by the time, if you're reading through, you've read a lot about kings in First and Second Samuel, and then you read a lot about kings in First and Second Kings, and so by the time you come to Chronicles, you're like, enough already, I got all this, and you kind of skip it. Many do. But when we put it in its proper, what I would say is its best location, I believe the location that the remnant of God's people, the Hebrews, in there in the days of old, when they stuck it there, when I, I might even make a case from Luke 11 where Jesus had Chronicles. I think when we do that, we see its importance, we see in a better way its meaning, the book of Chronicles' meanings. Uh, Chronicles was given as the last book in the Bible, uh, Hebrew Bible, for one main reason, because it gives you an entire overview of the Old Testament. It's giving you an overview of the Old Testament. If you just flip back back at the beginning, you'll notice in 1 Chronicles 1.1, what's the first word? Adam. Adam. The book documents, Chronicles documents Israel's history. Uh, And then the last words from Adam, it goes, the last words are this hope of looking to the return of the exile and building a temple. A hopeful turn of a more greater David. And it is therefore written from a forward perspective in order to tell you what we're supposed to take away from the Old Testament. It's written from a forward perspective. This is not a blow-by-blow, embedded journalist kind of giving you documentation day by day. This is a forward perspective. It is being written after the exile so as to help to sum up the Old Testament and get us ready, as it were, for the next book, the New Testament. And so here's the big idea of the Old Testament, and by implication, we might say, a big idea of the Old Testament, uh, the, sorry, the big idea of Chronicles, and we might say, by extension, a big idea of the Old Testament. Here it is. Earthly kings cannot bring heaven to earth. Therefore, look for a heavenly king that can. It's the big idea of Chronicles. Earthly kings cannot bring heaven to earth. Therefore, look for a heavenly king that can. Or we might say, in another way, do not trust in horses and chariots on earth, but look, for, look to trust in the Lord of heaven and earth. So here's the survey of the book. Don't feel the need to memorize this. It just kind of will help us orient us. All right, here's a survey of the entire book of Chronicles. From chapter 1 to chapter 9, by, documentation, by documenting genealogy, the author takes us from chapter 2 of Genesis, Adam, all the way to 1 Samuel 15, the rise of David. That's what he's doing in documenting all of those genealogies. From chapter 10 to the end of 1 Chronicles, uh, which is 1 Chronicles 29, from 10 to 29, you get the rise and the reign of David. From 2 Chronicles 1 to 9, the reign, you get there, the reign of David's son Solomon. 
You get the building and the dedication of the temple and eventually the death of Solomon. In chapter 10 is a significant moment. That's when the northern kingdom separates from the southern kingdom of Israel and Judah. And then from chapters 11 to 36, you get the documentation of all of the kings, but notice Chronicles focuses on the southern kings. And there's a reason for that. The author knows that the promised king is going to come out of the tribe of Judah. And so he's paying attention to those kings. He wants the reader to pay attention to those kings. And eventually, he references the exile there and the decree of Cyrus, which we'll consider at the end, for them to return, which again tells us the perspective of the reader, of the author, we should say. And so the book finishes with that hopeful turn at the end. That's the kind of flow of the book. But I mentioned the big idea is to say that the earthly kings cannot bring heaven to earth, therefore look for a heavenly king that can. So we've talked a lot about chronicles and kings. But the heaven to earth piece is part of my definition that is in reference to the other important part of chronicles. It's about kings, chronicles is about kings, but also about this heaven and earth. And that heaven and earth piece is what I've already referenced, the temple. So two big ideas, kings and the temple. The temple or the house of the Lord. This house of the Lord, this temple is where God would dwell amidst his people there in Jerusalem. And throughout the entire book of Chronicles, the author is wanting you to pay close attention to how the kings and the temple go together. How heaven and earth sort of interplay. So when kings, you'll find in Chronicles, when the kings were submitted to the temple, things went well. And the worship of the temple, things went well. When the kings did what they wanted and saw themselves as over the temple, worshiping in false ways, things went bad. And so as, earthly, as that line, earthly kings cannot bring heaven to earth, indicates the big idea, friends, is that even the good kings eventually fail. Teaching the reader of Chronicles to look for a heavenly king that would bring heaven and earth together. We might say, look for a king that's teaching about the kingdom of heaven on earth. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of one of those. In particular, the book of Chronicles wants us to look for a Davidic king. Since uh, the promise was given to David that there would be one on the throne of Israel forever that is from the house of David. So we got a king, leader of God's people. You got a temple, the house of God amongst his people. These are the kind of two things. So we've talked so far about the flow of the book. We've talked about the meaning of the book. Now let's get into the parts of the book. Here we go, first point, the preparation of the king for the temple. The preparation of the king for the temple. So God, as we have documented already, God had made a promise to David that he would have a son on the throne of God's people forever. And so David, therefore, since God was sort of making him a house, David got it in his heart that he would make God a kind of house. He wanted to build this temple. And so up until this time, the presence of God dwelt among his people in this thing called a tabernacle, which was in essence a tent, moving tent. And so David wants to build a permanent structure for the presence of the Lord there in the capital of Jerusalem. But the Lord denies David because he had shed so much blood in the conquering of the land. And so it was left to David's son Solomon to build that temple. But this doesn't stop David from doing all that he can to prepare Solomon for the building. So David, what he does, we find in that kind of, those latter half of First Chronicles, we find him collecting wood, collecting stone, collecting gold and silver. And this is important, he also uh, organizes the priests and the Levites to the worship that would occur in and around the temple. Which tells us, by the way, that since he's having to organize that, that tells you that it fallen out of practice. So that the way which he would have organized that, he would have known to go back to those first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all those, all through there. He's taking that and he's ordering now everything in place. He's got wood, stone, gold, silver, and the priests and the Levites are all in place for the facilitation of the building of the temple. And so David then prays at the end of his life this prayer. First Chronicles 29. All that stuff was put in place. He knows he's not going to build. He's about to die and he prays. First Chronicles 29.10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. 
For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. He goes on. Now the point of this passage is clear. The author wants us to see that the king, David, sees all of the provisions for the temple. They all come from God. In verse 17, we see David references there that he recognizes that all of these provisions which came from God, they passed through the willing hands of his people. But ultimately, David wants us to see, the author wants us to see that they are all a provision from God because everything in heaven and on earth is God's to begin with. His is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. All things come from him and and we, as David says, we are sojourners passing through God's world. Now again, why is it so important for David to say, and don't lose sight of the narrator's voice, why why does the author of Chronicles want the reader to know this, what David prayed? Here's why. Because the author wants the remnant, that is the believing community after the exile, he wants the remnant, the believing community of God's people to know that God has supplied for their every need. And he will supply then for their every need because he owns all things. Again, remember that forward perspective of the author. Israel is back in the land after the exile and as they are reading this, the temple is either destroyed or recently rebuilt in the shadow of its former glory. And so there's temptation in that community to doubt. But the reality is, we have reason to believe, the author is telling us, God has supplied and will supply for every need that God's people have to rightly worship the Lord because he owns all things. And here is the application for us as we step into this renovation. As God has supplied for our every need in the 10 years of our history, so will he supply for our every need to worship him in spirit and in truth. Just as Israel did not need the temple, so in the same way, we do not need this building. We've existed for 10 years without it. And yet the Lord has supplied it, this building, this facility, as is evidence, I believe, of his love for us. He has supplied it as evidence that he intends us to use this space to worship him the one that is author of every good gift. And this is, it is a good gift. It's a very good gift. And so, beloved, as David supplied for the needs of the worship of God and the house of God, and he did so understanding that ultimately all things came from God, we too must understand that this building ultimately comes from him. We too need to echo the words of David and say, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. Yours are the riches and the honor. Yours is this place. We need to see and say this often, that this is a provision of God. It is nothing of ourselves. We have not earned it. It is meant to then facilitate the worship of God since it came from him and is for him. Came from him and is for him. But also, just as David recognized there in verse 17 of 1 Chronicles 29, he recognized that this good gift passed through the willing hands of God's people. We too need to recognize and give thanks then for the saints of old that has facilitated this good gift to us from God. We, friends, at Restoration Church, we are the stewards of the decisions that the saints of old have made as far back as October of 1842 when 18 followers of Jesus Christ decided to form a church in the district. They signed, these people did, what is virtually the exact same covenant that our members still sign today. 
There was Robert P. Anderson and Betsy Owens, Ann Upperman and Elmira Fowler, Eleanor DeWeese and William Mann. They signed, again, that same covenant that we still sign today. And they built then, their, that church grew so much, they then purchased property off of E Street and built a building there in 1846, attended, by the way, at the dedication by the then-president John Tyler. It was at the time of the Mexican-American War, just to give you some context. And that building got so full, they eventually, Temple Baptist, became Temple Baptist. It went from E Street Baptist Church to Temple Baptist Church in 1902 when they purchased a piece of property off of 10th and N. That building still exists today as New Bethany Baptist Church. They then... They then made the decision to build this property in 1954, 1955. And so friends, this building is first a provision uh, of the Lord and for the worship of the Lord as it passed through the willing hands of the saints of old for the last 177 years. Their decisions have had a direct impact, a direct good impact upon us today. I mean, think about that. Robert Anderson and Ellen and Elmira, these gals, these guys and gals have had direct impact upon us today. And in particular, the decisions of the most recent members of the, of the Temple Baptist Church have had a direct upon us today. For just as David prepared for the building of the temple, so they, the recent members of Temple Baptist Church, have prepared for the rebuilding of Temple Baptist Church's meeting house. I'm speaking of Eldon Motes and Cynthia Motes of their children, Carlton and Kirk, Kendra and Carissa Motes. I'm speaking of Madeline Tuvanel and Sela Marrero and of course, Juanita Brown. They loved the God that gifted that building to them by their also gifting it to us. A decision, by the way, friends, they did not have to make. But they did for one reason, of which they have told us time and again, for the exaltation of Christ and the spread of his gospel in Washington, D.C. and beyond. And so on behalf of the members, let me say to you, those members of Temple Baptist Church, once again, thank you. Thank you for loving God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for doing as David did with Solomon, preparing all kinds of things that we might carry on the ministry of the gospel in this community. We recognize this is a sacrificial gift. So when Solomon went to build the temple, we think about this, when Solomon went to build the temple, he was able to do so with great efficiency because of what his father had supplied for him. And so similarly, we will be able to put more roots down into this community because of what you guys have done for us. And so we thank you. We especially thank you, Pastor Eldon Motes, for your leadership to Temple Baptist Church, your 21 years of service to this church and this community. I told my wife just the other night uh, that when the time comes for me to retire from ministry, uh, formal vocational ministry, I hope to do it the same way that you did it. I hope my spirit is exactly the same. And so we receive this gift with great thanksgiving and we thank God first. Uh, we thank him first because everything is from him. And secondarily, we thank the means of his grace, God's people. And so Restoration Church, as we walk through this building renovation, do so understanding first, this gift is from God since all good gifts come from him. He owns all things. We have not earned it. It's all of grace. And related to that, never forget that this gift of this facility was because of the decisions of saints gone by. And so may we steward these resources as they did to the glory of God. And we may, may we also set it up for the next generation that comes after us. Which leads to the second point, the dedication of the temple. Thought about the preparation, now the dedication of it. After David had died, the Lord chose his son Solomon to be the king of Israel. Many of you know the story of Solomon. Solomon's story is famous for having uh, the quintessential story for starting good and ending bad. At the beginning of his kingship, he asked the Lord to give him wisdom to, to minister to the people of God. And because he asked for that from God and not fame and fortune, God blessed him with an inordinate amount of wisdom, so much so that people were coming to hear of his wisdom. 
Uh, but his greatest task, Solomon's greatest task as king, once again, was to facilitate the worship of God, that bringing together of heaven and earth. And so though a man after God's, God's own heart in David, he couldn't do this as just a sinner in general, but also his sins were famous as an adulterer and as a murderer. Yeah. But also in some respect, the Lord had limited him to not building it because of his shedding blood as a conqueror. And so now Solomon was to come in and take up the banner of the king. With everything in place to build the temple, he, Solomon, facilitates its construction. He does a little bit more work to bring more things in. He facilitates its construction and its completion. And now the moment arrives for him to pray and dedicate the temple since this is God's people and he is the king of God's people. So I want you to imagine this moment. Look over there and see the altars in place. Look across the way and notice those golden utensils being carried into the building. Notice the temple itself is finished. It's two compartments of the holy place and then inside even further, the most holy place. Watch, do you see it? Watch as the priests carry in the Ark of the Covenant, taking it out of the tabernacle, bring it into the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. Note as you look around, that the priests and the Levites have all taken their place. Everything is there for the facilitation of the worship of the glory of God and Solomon then begins to pray in 2 Chronicles chapter six. I'm gonna read from verse 12 to 21 and then down to 40 and 42. He prays, 2 Chronicles chapter six, verse 12. When Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands, Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. Then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart who have kept your servant David, my father, that what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand and have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. Note the transition here. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. And then the conclusion of the prayer goes like this. Verse 40, now, O oh my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So first, guys, I want you to notice, I want you to notice not only the words of Solomon, but did you notice the physical posture of Solomon? He had constructed apparently this sort of platform of sorts so that all of Israel, the assembly of Israel, might see him. And you'll note that he walks up to that and he bows on his knees and he lifts his hands and prays. And he does this in the sight of all God's people. And he begins to pray what in essence, of course, is true, that God cannot be contained in this building made by man. Solomon understands and he wants the people to understand that God is greater than this magnificent building. 
He then moves to direct the praise of the people when he says, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness, followed by a request. Don't turn away from the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David. So beloved, remember, listen to the narrator's voice in Solomon's voice. We can't lose sight of the author's intention as he writes this on the other side of the exile. The author puts this portion of the prayer inside of here to remind the reader that God is not going to turn away from the face of his anointed. That God's steadfast love will remember his promise to David to have a son on the throne of God's people forever. He wants us to remember that as we understand the majesty of God and the goodness of God. And then we get that note in 2 Chronicles 7. If you look down there, you can see what happens. After this prayer, fire comes down to consume the offering, showing that God's pleased. And the glory of the Lord, it says, fills the temple. The weight of God is so great in this moment that the priest cannot enter the house of of the Lord. We find that the people are so in awe of the might of the glory of God descending on that temple that their faces just fall to the ground and they begin to worship and they pray for his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. That's this moment. The temple, friends, was meant to be the heart of Israel's worship, the heart of their life together. And God, we find, was pleased to dwell among a sinful people in order that the whole of their lives might be centered upon the exaltation of the glory of God. And this moment illustrates all of that, what it's supposed to be like. Everything was together. Everything was good. The king had submitted himself to God, which led the people we see to do the same. God was dwelling among his people. Those people were worshiping him. This is what the world was made to be, to do in this moment. That man might live upon the earth, working it and keeping it for the glory of God and for the shalom of the world, for the peace of the world, for the rest of the world. God dwelling with his people as his people love him and live for his glory and then loving each other in the same way that God had loved them. Guys, this is what happened, right, in the Garden of Eden. God was with them. They were worshiping, working and keeping to the glory of God. And here, God is working it out again amongst his people. God's dwelling with them. And as Chronicles will tell us, in the days that followed those events that I just read, we find that rest or shalom followed the land. Just as God rested on that seventh day, pointing to the day of days when the world will rest with God in their midst. That's the day that we wait for, right? And so though they had failed countless times before Second Chronicles 6, here in this moment, all was as it should be. And so friends, in the same way, all will be as it should be with us when our worship is ordered by the exaltation and the enjoyment of the glory of God together. Friends, we are going to try and do the very best we can to spend every penny of kingdom dollars that have been entrusted to us for the renovation of this building. We are going to try to spend every penny with a laser focus on this moment right here. Mankind together, assembling together in order that we might bow our knees and lift our hands and praise to God. This, that every decision that we make, this whole facility, upstairs, downstairs, this room, all of it, just think about it, all of it facilitating this worship the singing in this hall, the teaching in the classrooms to the kids, the prayers that will be authored, the fellowship meals that will be had, all of it, assembling together for the praise of the magnification of the glory of God. This building, friend, does not exist for my glory, does not exist for Joey's glory, does not exist for your glory, does not exist for Restoration Church's glory. It exists for the glory of God. That's why it exists. Because everything is from him. And so therefore, everything is then for him. This building is ultimately for him. It's from him, and so we worship it because it is for him. Guys, if we lose sight of that, we lose everything. Every story that I've heard about church splits amidst church renovations or building projects is because people lose sight of this fact. That's why. They forget 
why the church exists in the first place. They forget that it came from God ultimately through the hands of his people and they forget that it exists for his glorification. Instead of bowing the knees, those people uh, lift, instead of bowing their knees and lifting up their arms to the praise of God as Solomon did, those people, they stand up and they point their fingers towards other peoples as if they are the one from whom and for whom that building existed. It's not the way it should be. This building, friends, is a great gift, but it is only a gift for the means of worshiping the glory of God, the glory of Christ together. Inviting our neighbors, especially around here, inviting our neighbors and the nations to come with us to worship him in spirit and truth together, bringing them and inviting them in here. So eventually, friends, again, we're going to have to choose flooring. We're going to have to choose paint colors. We're going to have to choose light fixtures and furniture and seating. Tedious things in the eyes of most. Unnecessary things, we might even say. But helpful things as we facilitate the worship of God together. And so when we make those decisions, when we make those decisions, remember, friend, remember, beloved, Solomon kneeling on that stage, arms lifted high in praise to God. That's why we're here. That's why we are doing this renovation for the worship of God. That's why this building exists in the first place. Not so we can feel good about ourselves and keep us from our neighbors. No but we might love God by going to our neighbors and inviting them in here to do life and worship God together. His steadfast love. And so we remember so far, first point, this building is a gift from God. Secondly, we remember that this building is a gift for God, the worship of God. And lastly, we do all of this with a sobering reminder. Again, we've thought about the preparation of the building of the temple, the dedication of it. Now, thirdly, let's consider the destruction of the temple. Flip to the back end of this one book, 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. We're going to be looking at verse 17. Take a look there. I'll get to the therefore in a second. Therefore he brought up against them, that's the Israelites, the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men and with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin or old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. And he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. What a contrast. What a contrast. The paint, as it were, freshly applied to the temple is complete. The glory of God descends. Rest is given to the land. And what is the lot of that structure? It's all burned down. All those golden vessels are carried away, just like God's were, God's people were, just like Adam and Eve were. They were all carried away east of Eden to Babylon, exile again. What began so beautifully, so majestically, so powerfully ended, charred and pillaged. And again, remember the specter, remember the perspective of not only the author, remember this perspective of the reader of Chronicles. He or she knew about the destruction of the temple when they were reading it in 2 Chronicles 6 in the prayer of dedication. They knew then what was going to happen. And then they read and they're reminded why it all happened. Look at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But 
they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Summation of the Old Testament. And note those words. God had persistently sent them messengers. And he did so in compassion. He wasn't being mean. God often gets the reputation of being so mean in the Old Testament. There, right there, in the words themselves, in the compassion of God, to call him back, right into right worship. And yet they kept mocking, time and again, the message of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets. This, friends, is the story of the Israelites. And even we find, even when we find that they get things right, it's always just for a short time. And then they would always eventually go after other gods. Their hearts were bent towards idolatry. Therefore, they wouldn't listen to the compassionate voice of the Lord as he sent them messenger after messenger after messenger. We find that from the time of Israel, when they left Egypt to the destruction of the temple, that was just under, we think, just under 1,000 years. Just under 1,000 years of God's people receiving everything from the Lord by his mercy, protection, the land, the law, prophets, all these good things, cisterns that they did not dig, houses that they did, did not build, the presence of God in the midst, taking all of that and acting as though they deserved it and thumbing their nose at God. Friends, what, ama- what is amazing is not that God judged his people and exiled them. What is amazing is that he was patient with them for almost a thousand years of generation after generation after generation of thumbing their nose at God, taking his gifts but caring little for him. And yet he was still compassionate, trying to get them to turn. So the author wants the reader to understand these realities, that God had been faithful to the covenant. God had been steadfast in his love. God had been compassionate. It was Israel that had persistently ran away from the life and the love of God. They did not bow the knee and worship the Lord. They lived and they loved however they wanted. Worship God however they wanted. And God sent them prophet after prophet to warn them and call them to repentance, but they wouldn't turn. And God had had enough. It says there, there was no remedy. Will we learn from their mistakes? Restoration Church. Will we learn from the failures of God's people in times past? Which is to say, will we run after idols of our own throughout this time? Will we turn this building into a house of whores that just needs to be burned down and its resources carried away because of our own idolatry? Or will we consistently, constantly, daily pray, listen, love the persistent compassion of God as we sing about it, pray about it, and teach it? Well, beloved, I for one believe that we will weather this well. I believe that we will weather all of this renovation well. I believe that. I believe that each one of us will learn from David, from Solomon, and the Israelites of old and come out of this renovation with our eyes on the prize of Christ the King together as one. I believe that we will make decisions in the next year that will set us up for the next 20 to 30 years until our children will take over the ownership of this facility to carry on the gospel. And I believe that we will weather it well for two reasons. One, because I believe that you believe everything that I've said is true. I don't think there was anything that was really surprising to you about what is going on in the text and what we ought to be doing. I believe that you believe that. I believe that you believe this building is not earned but given. Given by God through the means of the saints of Temple Baptist Church 177 years, Pastor Motes and his family and the others. I believe that you believe that. I believe that you believe that it was given by God and it was given for God. I believe that you believe that. And I believe that you believe that because you've shown yourself not to be stiff-necked like the Israelites. You've shown yourself to be people like that. And so may that continue into the next reason. For the praise of his glory, not for the praise of ourselves, but to orient us to the world to come. But more importantly, the second reason why I believe that we'll get through this together with unity is because I believe that the God that has formed this church, that formed it 10 years ago and has sustained us, he will sustain us again in this coming season. Not only for this season, but for the next 10, 20, or 30 years. 
I believe that. But as I close, I think it's important that we cast our eyes down to those final verses in Second Chronicles. What have I not done, beloved, that you should be waiting for? Remember, these are the final words of the Old Testament. Right? I would fail us if we did not turn our eyes to the king of kings. We talked a lot about kings in worship. The testimony of the entire Old Testament was that no earthly king was thoroughly faithful to the house of the Lord. That's what Chronicles shows us. Chronicles, Chronicles, king after king who was either evil or good in the eyes of the Lord, but even the good ones like David and Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah, there's always this little script, but he didn't take down the high places. This little note, even the good ones didn't get it right. Even them, the author gives us those small details that this notion of heaven on earth, the temple, are somehow not quite right. And so with the charred ruins in the foreground, the exiles either still exiled or probably having recently returned or even after the temple has been built, these are the final words of the Old Testament. You ready? Second Chronicles 36, verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. A pagan king, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So the Old Testament ends with this view towards God's people coming back into God's land, God's place, to build God's temple. When we turn one page from the Hebrew altar into the New Testament, what do we read? We read of another genealogy, just as Chronicles began. And that genealogy documents the promise of God to have a son of Abraham, to have a son of David, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one that will come with heaven in him, and he will dwell among his people. The temple, heaven will come to earth in the form of God's son, the King of kings, Jesus, the Christ, the promised one, the one that the remnant of God's people had been waiting for, the one that the author of Chronicles, I fully believe it is clear, crystal clear in his mind, is looking for. That's why he's writing. He comes, Jesus comes, we find some four or five hundred years later, he comes into that same temple we've been reading about. It's been restored at this point again. Jesus walks into that same temple in John chapter 2, verse 19, and what does he find? They're at it again misusing the worship of God, misusing the temple of God. Again, y'all know the story. He turns the tables over and Jesus says in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, he was referencing himself, his body, the temple. He was the temple. This, friends, is the hope of the entire Bible. If you're not a Christian and you're wondering, this seems like just a strange book of collages of just all these random stories. Well, friend, they all come together in Christ Jesus, the one that is the temple, the one that is also the king. And he, the king, comes from heaven and earth because he is heaven. He is fully God and fully man, and he lives as the temple, completely faithful, as a king, completely faithful, which is why he was able to make atonement, to make payment for all those that repent and believe, for all that remnant that were hoping in him for forgiveness, not their own works, not their own even sacrifices, but Jesus, he the king, he the temple, he the house of the Lord himself makes payment on the cross. That's why the cross is so important to us. He purchased heaven for sinners on the cross. He's buried and of course on the third day he rises again showing that he defeats sin and death. He's the only one that is able to do so. He brought heaven to earth because he was the temple himself. And so when he then ascends after 40 days, he ascends with the payment of his blood to the throne of his father. He ascends to that temple and he pleads the merit of his own blood, which then makes it possible for God to then trigger the Holy Spirit to go and live amongst God's people. And now get this, blow your mind crazy, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Guess where the temple is now? Well, believe it or not, beloved, you're looking at a temple. 
Now the temple is those of us that love and trust Jesus because of his payment for us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? (laughs) How about that for a plot twist? And friends, this is exactly why I believe the saints in 18, or sorry, 1902 chose the name Temple Baptist Church because they wanted you to remember this. Because they wanted to remind everyone in their church that this church, this assembly, is the people. The people are the temple. The people of God. We house the Spirit of God within us by our grace through faith in Christ alone. We are now God's temple. He resides with us. And we gather together We gather together every Sunday waiting for the day when all of God's people will come together and worship as one. Which reminds us of the final words of the New Testament. What are those, you might ask? Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down, down, out of heaven to earth, down, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Were the bride adorned for her husband, Christ? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, this is what we've been waiting for. The whole Bible has been waiting for this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And since he's there, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor COVID viruses for the former things have passed away. So now we are the first fruits of the temple. We now have the spirit within us, but we wait for a day when the whole earth will be a temple. When God will dwell with us, he will be all and in all. And we will worship him together with sight. Earthly kings cannot bring heaven to earth. But a heavenly king, the heavenly king, has and he will. The spirit within us is a testimony of that fact. And so may all that happens inside of these facilities be a foretaste of that day when again the whole earth will be a temple as we worship the greater David, the greater king, the king of kings, Christ the Lord, together. May this facility in our life together inside of it point to that day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were the temple. And now because of your finished work, now the Holy Spirit can take up residence within all of those that repent and believe on you. Now we can be a foretaste of the day ahead, the day that the Bible has been waiting for, God's people have been waiting for, the final chapter of redemption when this whole earth will be filled with your glory. It'll be one big temple as we worship you. And so we pray, God, every decision we make, and it's, going to, it's not going to be easy, but every decision that we make as it relates to this renovation would, would be lived in light of the days that have gone by and the day that is going to come. Give us grace to love you and love each other towards that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.